third episode of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and anxiety. My name is Max Haven, and I'm Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice at Lakehead University. And my name is Aris Komporosos Afanasiu, and I'm a lecturer in sociology at University College London. On this show, we speak to people whose research or writing has inspired us to think differently about capitalism and society. We seek to go beyond medical approaches to mental health and we explore the way in which uh, an economic system both produces and relies on anxiety. Our podcast is produced by the Common Anxieties Research Project with the support of UCL's Institute of Advanced Studies and the Reimagining Value Action Lab. For more information, you can visit anxious.community. So this week, uh, we're very pleased to have with us Alana Lenton, who is an associate professor in cultural and social analysis at Western Sydney University. She is a European and West Asian Jewish woman who is a settler on Gadigal land. She works on the critical theorization of race, racism, and anti-racism. Her latest book is uh, Why Race Still Matters, newly out from Polity. And it's about that book, and it's specifically its second chapter that we're going to talk today. Hello, Alana. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi from a Gadigal country, unceded sovereign territory of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Happy to be with you tonight. Thanks so much. Um, I think I first came across your work when I was uh, trying to understand race and racism. Um, and, and like your new book, your previous books have always, I've always found to be extremely um, insightful and penetrating and uh, expansive, but also right to the point in some way. They give us really incredible resources for uh, what, you, what I think in this book you term sort of a racial literacy. Mm. Um, and and it, it leads to kind of the first question I wanted to ask you, um, because one of the arguments you sort of make throughout the book is that um, the, the kind of racial illiteracy that is so common these days and so dangerously weaponized these days, um, produces a huge amount of anxiety. And in a moment, I think we'll, we'll come to the question of the anxieties that it produces for racialized people who have to endure a racist mm. society and one where racial literacy is uh, terribly poor. Uh, but I, I wanted to begin with this sort of strange question about why racism and, and talk about race, it produces so much anxiety um, in society at large and especially among white people. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because I think that it's not the racial illiteracy that produces anxiety. Um, Race uh, or knowledge about the extent to which race factors um, and shapes the living conditions of the majority of people in society or everybody in society uh, is what produces the anxiety. And I think um, it's been interesting to think about how this term racial literacy as it relates to my work has been taken up. And a few of us, including my friend and colleague, the Aboriginal scholar, uh, Debbie Bargalli, um, have been discussing this because we're a little bit worried that racial literacy is going to become one of these things that people now want training in. Um, How do we overcome our anxieties about race as good uh, white liberal progressive people by gaining this racial literacy? 
and we we don't we're very adamant that it shouldn't go the way of kind of you know the racism awareness training that uh, Sivanandan so adequately and and you know piercingly um, critiqued uh, back in the 1980s. Uh, or other kinds of initiatives that we'd be familiar with, like the equity and diversity measures and all these kinds of things. Um, so I think it's important first to state that. Um, and, and, and this issue of anxiety, I think it's really interesting because on the one hand, I think there is a deep anxiety born of, I think, the deep sense of illegitimacy that I think white people know about. Um, they know that their privilege and their status in society on a planet, not just on local society level, but on a planetary scale is illegitimate, that it's ill-gotten. Um, because if we think about race as a process or a set of processes or a set of technologies for the governance of human difference, whose ultimate aim is the maintenance and the spread of white supremacy over time, um, this is not something that's done unknowingly. This is something that's done with purpose. And I think that um, one of the, 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 the central ways in which racism takes hold today or the way it manifests is in what uh, Gloria Becker calls white innocence or Charles Mills has referred to as a white ignorance. In other words, it's we didn't know or we weren't told about, for example, the crimes of colonialism. Uh, we didn't know that um, people were, for example, if we think about the 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 current crisis with the coronavirus. Um, you know, we didn't know that black and uh, brown people um, were at greater risk of, um, you know, contracting the virus because of intergenerational racism, et cetera, and the, the effect that that has on the body and so on. All of these kinds of ignorances and innocences, which I think are very convenient, but they're a narrative, they're a script, right? And that Behind all of that, this deep knowledge that actually people do know exactly what they're complicit in. We think about just the case that had happened uh, the other day with the woman with the dog who, who telephoned the police uh, because a black man who was bird watching in Central Park in New York asked her to keep her dog on the leash. Uh, one of the things that people remarked about was that wasn't it quite striking that she telephoned the police in the knowledge that she was being filmed? So there is, a, you know, there was a knowledge or at least a belief that she would be protect, protected despite the fact that she was showing the world that she was actually doing something uh, wrong and that there was no case of aggression, there was no case of violence uh, against her. So I think this idea of anxiety comes from this deep knowledge that white people have of the illegitimacy of their status in society based on a ruse, which is, of course, the ruse of race. Uh, yeah, that's so so well put. Um, and I, I'm aware that our our listenership is uh, comes from a lot of different backgrounds. So I wanted to take a quick opportunity to ask you to give us a kind of um, a quick overview about the way that um, in critical race theory um, and anti-racist scholarship um, we we think about race and mm -hmm. we think about about whiteness in particular. And I wanted to ask you that by touching on a bit of a theme in your, in your book, which is that for a long time, I think, there, and you point out, there's been a tendency in anti-racist activism and scholarship to, to simply imagine that saying that these things are social constructions is enough, mm -hmm. as if to say, well, race was created in the 18th and 19th century by intellectuals and, and whiteness was a kind of fabricated category. 
um, mm. is, is enough to then make it disappear in a puff of smoke. But, but you point out that in fact, no, that, that, that observation is not enough and we need to do a kind of deeper work. So I would ask you to just maybe pick up on that point and also give us a little sense about how, how it's useful to talk about whiteness in this moment. Mm. Yeah, so it's so two different things, I suppose, um, although, yeah, they're kind of interrelated with each other. I mean, I think the first thing to say, because you mentioned critical race theory, and I guess if you have people who are listening to this who are not necessarily coming from the background of critical race theory or, or the term that I prefer, which is race critical theory, race critical studies, um, is to say that there's, there's no agreement necessarily. And in fact, it was interesting because a review came out of my book uh, yesterday, I think, written by Sindra Bangstad, who's based in Norway. And he said, one of the things that I don't do in my book, and it was a generous review, but what he said, one of the things that I don't do in my book is engage seriously with anti-racist scholars who have nevertheless taken the opposing stand to me, which is that we actually should uh, debunk and, and deconstruct and, and you know, refuse to use the category race. And Paul Gilroy is, is the main example of this. And I have engaged extensively with Gilroy's work in the past and been extremely inspired by him since my days as a PhD student. But in this book, it's true that I've decided not to do that, but to depart from a position where I take it for granted that if you want to talk about getting rid of something, how do you do it without using the without referring to the thing that you want to get rid of. And my, the analogy that I gave in the book is with gender. I mean, if we want to give, get rid of gender as, um, you know, a straitjacket that is ultimately, uh, you know, holds the advance of society down, et cetera, et cetera, we can't actually do that without referring to the category gender or to the concept of gender or to the spectrum of gender or whatever we want to talk about it as. We need to talk about this concept because it's been such a powerful tool for, uh, demarcating and, 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 you know, discriminating and so on and so forth. And the same thing is here with race. So the problem with race is that we think about it or the idea that race is a social construct has become so powerful that in the end of the day, well, has become so um, omnipresent that in the, in, in the end of the day, it's lost meaning. And I'm not the first person to raise this. I mean, Stuart Hall um, uh, spoke about this in his lectures uh, uh, which are reproduced in the book uh, called The Fateful Triangle, um, raise the floating signifier. Ultimately, you, you enter into this tautological situation where the thing that you get, want to get rid of is a thing that is still kind of uh, underpinning all of the, the structures of power that you're trying to point out in order to dismantle them, right? And uh, somebody else that spoke about this very usefully is the um, African-American studies professor, Barner Hesse, in a lecture that he gave, and that, well, it's actually a debate that he has with Charles Mills, which is available on YouTube and which is very instructive for anybody who wants to listen to it. And he goes, you know, the problem with uh, talking about race as a social construction is that you have to say, well, what is it a social construction of? And in the book, I cite this and I say he write or he says in his talk that you say that race is the social construction of the biological idea of race. So what you do is you end up with the biological idea of race, which is the very thing that you want to say is a fiction. So what are you actually saying? And Patrick Wolf, the, the late uh, historian of race and colonialism, wrote as well. Well, fine, say it's a social construction, but tell us how it's been socially constructed right, in order to then be able to show this. And this is, and to say how race is socially constructed demands a very, very precise project of looking at, and this is what Wolf does very well by looking at race in very specific contexts, so in relation to indigeneity, in relation to anti-blackness, anti-Semitism, and he also looks at Brazil. 
uh, and very, very specifically goes into all of these cases and shows the, the, the precise ways in which race is being constructed, produced and reproduced over time uh, in response to the various conditions in which it needs to be used because ultimately race is a system or a logic of justification for practices of domination um, across a number of spheres. Um, and, and that's really important work to do. In my book, because it's not that kind of, I'm not a historian, I'm not trying to do that kind of reconstructive process, but I try to look at it from a more macro uh, level and think about, well, what, what work are these concepts doing? And specifically in the current moment, and I think this links really frighteningly with the current health crisis, global pandemic that we're all living through, the work that, that talking about race as a social construct ends up doing is what um, you know ends up being a gift to the right because if race is just a social construct right then also we can talk about anything we can say you know well anyway it's just fictitious so if we're just talking we're just talking right and this has opened the door to all kinds of extremely virulent ideas around eugenics which has gifted us you know the, the wonderful gift of, of herd immunity as a policy proposal which is actually being taken seriously leading to you know thousands of deaths in places like sweden for example uh, the uk okay has you know rolled back from that but initially this was the policy proposal and in practice when you look at the, the number of deaths, particularly of racialized people in the US, even though that's not the official policy, right, the policy ends up being a eugenicist or at least a, a necro uh, political one. And I think it's, it's by not being precise about race and just thinking that this is something that we're all against or that, we're all, or that society is past, so this post-racial idea, has at least in part played a role in opening the door to this kind of viewpoint diversity, as they like to say, approach to talking about these issues as just another idea on a smorgasbord of, of ideas. Yeah, um, it's, it's shocking and also not shocking. Shocking and not surprising. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it seems like so many things today. Well, I think this gives us a great, a great segue to talking about your, the second chapter of your new book, um, where you, you give us a definition of not racism, uh, in quotation marks, this, yes. this claim that is so often made by people espousing racist opinion, mm. um, that in fact, they're, they're not racist and that either they're, they're sort of deeply aggrieved and offended that you would suggest that they're racist, or that in fact, uh, by suggesting that they are racist or that their speech has been racist, you, the, the, the accuser, are therefore the racist one. Yeah. Um, which I think it will be familiar to many people, and you offer many examples in the chapter from popular culture to academic and pseudo-academic discourse. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to read a couple passages here and ask you to, to speak about them. So. And near the beginning of the chapter, you, 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 you explain that, uh, quote, not racism, and I'll, I'll use scare quotes here, uh, mm -hmm. characterizes how we speak about racism today and goes beyond denial and pseudo-humanistic declarations of colorblindness. Not racism entails the constant redefinition of racism to suit white agendas and goes to the heart of the question of who gets to define what racism is. We are long past the days of post-racialism. Post -racialism. Today, defining racism has become a site of political struggle. And you go on to give us two, um, two ways that this, this kind of not racist discourse expresses itself. 
and say there are two elements always accompany the presentation of an individual or situation as not racist. First, racism is characterized as an excessive inscription. Second, alternative definitions of racism that diverge radically from what most people on the receiving end of racism understand it to be are offered in its place. The redefinition of racism as universal, ahistorical, and a question of individual morality, rather than being structurally engendered, is the linchpin on which not racism hangs. I wondered if you could just kind of unpack, unpack this a bit for us, both the idea that not racism has come to sort of dominate how we talk about racism uh, and race, and, and second, these two features that, that one, it's, a, it's characterized as excessive, that, that's talking about something as racism seen as excessive, and second, that it, it relies on this sort of terrible ahistorical uh, and individualizing notion of what racism is. Yeah, so what I try to do in the book is to try to explain the way I see it, um, which is that the dominant definition that we have of racism, which I'll say what that is in a minute, but that this opens the door to not racism. So in fact, not racism is already imminent to racism, uh, which is a Eurocentric formulation. This is another idea that I've been inspired by Barner Hesse, and he wrote about this earlier in relation to post-racism or post-racialism. And I think it stands for this, uh, you know, nobody talks about post-racialism anymore. Um, we're in much more openly racist times, but the formulation that that open racism takes is this redefinition of racism as not racism. So basically nothing can be racism except potentially anti-white racism, which is of course something which is openly, um, you know, said in a completely ahistorical manner. So what we need to do is look back to the history of racism and think about where and how it emerges. And there, you know, there are various, there are histories of, of racism and how it's formulated. And I don't do that necessarily in the book. I look at one particular branch of, or one particular way in which racism was used in the early 20th century, which was by anti-racist. So racist, racism as a, as a word is really first coined by racists about their project, right? But later on, it's coined by people uh, mainly working in anthropology in the French context who, um, who were avowed anti-racism. These were actually people who, because they were working in physical anthropology at the time, were involved in what we would today call racial science. Um, so they were literally doing experimentation on racialized people, but they, they came to think that it was untenable to think about European society as being divided racially. Uh, and that this was wrong, particularly in the context of rising fascism and anti-Semitism. Um, and so they wanted to think about a European race as being sort of one, but that this could be opposed to, you know, racialized people in other contexts. And these people happily kind of devised an anti-racist, an intra-European anti-racist politics that sat beside um, their, you know, practicing of racial science within the colonial context, right? So when I look at that, uh, and I was basing myself on a, the work of a historian, a French historian uh, called Renaud Paligot, who did this work, looking at the, that work of the physical anthropologists, uh, the French physical anthropologists of the early 20th century. And when you look at that, you think, well, this formulation that tries to separate between um, an, an idea of intra-European unity, racial unity, 
uh, as opposed to an otherness which is out there beyond Europe, is ultimately what the race, the race project is about. And again, Barna Hesse talks about race as ultimately being about the constitution, the, what he calls the colonial constitution of Europeanness as opposed to non-Europeanness. Beyond everything else, this is what it's really about. And we think about this in the, in the context of, you know, ramp, rampant colonialism and capitalist accumulation, etc. then obviously we can understand the context, the political context out of which the necessity for this emerges. So what we're left with is a very thin understanding of race, which boils it down to, to uh, as I say, a Eurocentric, Eurocentric formulation of racism, which is really about um, the division of, um, of people along biological racial lines, which is only one part of the race project, right? So race when it, you know, is obviously about the management of human difference, but if you look at the way it's assembled, it relies on a whole host of different, uh, you know, justifications uh, to make its case. And because as Patrick Wolfe has written, it's such an unstable concept. It constantly needs making and remaking in order to give it meaning. So it relies on, you know, cultural, uh, religious, geographical, as well as the bodily, as well as the genetic. And really, the, those biological and genetic explanations are just this kind of later, you know, come late in the game when we think about the, the longer durée of, of the project of racial rule. So ultimately, racism becomes about believing that we are biologically or genetically organized along this hierarchy and that this, and obviously from an anti-racist perspective or a mainstream anti-racist perspective, this is wrong. Now, nobody's denying the fact that this is absolutely wrong. It has absolutely no, uh, there's, there's no objective truth to this concept whatsoever. However, if we, if we boil racism or race down only to that, we fail to see the various other guises in which it uh, takes shape and it allows us to ignore the colonial uh, project and the in you know the, the the local projects which kind of mimic that uh, while focusing everything onto this idea that racism is um, a moral wrong right because it ultimately deals in the division of the human species into subcategories and so on and so forth and in terms of human behavior or human attitudes to this because we've failed to teach honestly and openly the history of the extent to which race has been central to the formation of modern societies and we've boiled it down to this idea of you know being um having this you know a, a moral viciousness which is the way uh, one philosopher of race has described it uh, J. Uh, J. L. garcia is that you need you know racism is necessarily has to be intentional and has to be vicious and nobody wants to think of themselves as having you know discriminatory ideas about anybody else and because we only hear racism as an individual accusation and we've distanced it so far from a macro historical understanding which related to capitalism and colonialism, et cetera, then we're left with this very thin description or description of racism, which, um, which means that anybody can claim to be not racist because they don't think of themselves personally as being a discriminatory person. Um, and the second piece of that is because uh, racism is seen always as extreme and as pathological, 
um, we are able to, or many people are able to talk about situations which they see as uh, commonsensical as not racist. So for example, if you think that there's too much immigration in society because uh, there's a strain on the welfare state or because uh, let's say, for example, uh, people who practice the Muslim religion are, you know, their, their cultural practices are too different to the ones in your society, et cetera, then you can argue that this is not racist because I don't believe that these people are genetically inferior to me or that they should be killed or whatever else like the Nazis did, right? I just simply think that, you know, they would be happier off in their homeland and as I'm happier in my, in my homeland. And denying me the right to say that is in itself racist because we've come to understand racism as simply being sort of, to boil it down and use childish language, being mean to others, yeah? So there's various things going on, um, but I think, again, linking it back to the history of the formulation of racism is really important in order to show how already at its inception, this possibility of saying I'm not racist already existed in the formulation itself. I feel like this is such such an important point, um, and I, I want to bring it to the the question of the the kind of phobia that then is is generated and has become so politically effective uh, around around racism here. And I want to I want to take a quote uh, here. Um, so you write that a large part of the success of not racism is its proponent's ability to portray themselves as defenders of enlightenment rationality and the free and free inquiry against an authoritarian anti-racist hegemony that finds academic legitimacy in what they propose is the unscientific domain of critical race theory. And I want to tie this to, to what you were just mentioning that, you know, when we are, when we're left with this incredibly emaciated notion of, of race that is only, you know, has its signposts as only kind of the most um, now outdated notions of biological race or the, the sort of monstrous figure of the Nazis. Um, we, we don't, there's, there's an incredible paucity of, of this kind of racial literacy we were talking about earlier, which then has left a situation where the mostly factions on the far right, but you also point out in your book, many factions on the left as well, um, make a great deal of headway by saying that it is in fact the anti-racists who are creating this authoritarian atmosphere in which discussion about race, uh, important discussions about society, about migration, et cetera, et cetera, cannot be had. And mm. this kind of um, cult of persecution um, yeah. has been extremely successful. To what do you ascribe the success of this? Because I imagine if we were to zoom out from Mars and look at it, it would, it would seem very strange, given especially that from any sociological perspective, the whatever sort of um, un, unhappiness or um, uh, sort of difficulties individuals may face because they feel perhaps they can't provide their, their weird ideas about race, pales in comparison to the actual lived experience of racialized people who suffer under racial capitalism. Mm. I, I'm curious why this has become such a successful discourse in this moment. Yeah, I mean, look, there's various things going on and I, think, I don't think it's necessarily this moment. I think it's very acute at this moment, but I think that's because there's been um, an orchestrated onslaught um, 
by both uh, you know media, uh, um, mainstream politics, um, and the circumstances that we've reached as a consequence as a consequence of 30, 40 years of neoliberal division uh, in Western or societies or societies of the global north that have created the conditions for this to appear more acute today. Um, uh, maybe it's naive to when we look back to you know when I guess all of us were younger <laughs> in the I, I think perhaps it would have we were naive or at least I was let me just talk for myself about you know thinking that I, I don't think I could have projected the degree to which white supremacist um, openly neo-nazi ideas would be paraded on for example you know the BBC and so on I think all of us, but but really, we shouldn't be surprised, and we should look at what would the, the ground that was being laid uh, for that. And one of the one of the things that I think we can point to. So, I mean, the general thing is which I've already mentioned, so I don't necessarily need to return to. But I think I want to say one extra thing about this: the degree of racial literacy is orchestrated, and within academia, it's orchestrated. Uh, not only by figures on the right, so I mean, I, I speak quite a lot about the professor of politics at Birkbeck College, Eric Kaufman, and his book, um, White Shift, and his earlier report, Racial Self-Interest is Not Racism, as a key proponent of this not racism discourse. And he's a defender of, you know, people who write about eugenics and herd immunity and all this kind of stuff, in, in, and in increasingly worrying ways. Um, so, so not just people like that, but just in general, if we think about just, you know, we, we all work in academia and you think about your general, you know, progressive colleagues, even people on the left who are very concerned with social inequality, capitalism, etc., you'll find that they're very, um, they haven't read very much in the field of race. And that's because race has very successfully been treated as something that's a marginal topic. And that shouldn't be necessarily, you know, it's something that you might do. I remember when I used to teach a general social theory course, race and gender were always the last two weeks of the, of the semester. And that's very common. And that's because we don't think about the need to, to, to mainstream, to use that horrible language, but to mainstream these topics and to thread them through everything that we do. They're add-ons at best, or even sometimes just left completely off the agenda. Um, and this is because there's been, you know, there's, there's been a great success in thinking about these as marginal um, topics. Uh, gender is another one, but I think gender has been more successful at, at, at being included in, as a, uh, in, in courses of study than, than race um, has. And I think on, you know, from more, from a more political perspective, I think, you know, and this is something again to return to Sivanandan, you know, who is pointing at the uh, at the time that the whole way in which racism, um, institutional racism, uh, systemic racism was being coped with in you know societies that we're all familiar with, uh, Britain, the U.S., uh, Canada, Australia, and so on was the diversity agenda, the equity and diversity agenda, multiculturalism before that, and so on, as measures, as Paul Gilroy wrote in There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack back in 1987, you know, these were measures to radically kill off the um, insurgent, black-led, autonomous, anti-racist movement um, and which was inspired by anti-colonialism, which is very much in alignment with anti-colonial movements at a time when that was still possible, you know, in the 1960s and 1970s. And, you know, 
the, the problem with all of this then that I have, and this is something that I also discuss in the book, is that yes, uh, the, there's kind of this very, um, this kind of unfair, I think, criticism that comes then from an older generation to a younger generation who are seen, uh, I'm talking about within anti-racist politics and black politics particularly, who are seen as kind of selling out to this neoliberal agenda um, of diversity and representation, politics of representation and respectability politics and all these kinds of thing. And this kind of admonishment of them to kind of, you know, go back to the inspiration of, let's say, for example, the Black Power Movement and so on, which I think doesn't take into account the degree to which the, 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 the continuity uh, or the potential continuities from that generation to this have been purposefully, you know, I don't know, purposefully killed or purposefully severed by those in power in collusion with those whom, uh, you know, uh, Gilroy again would have referred to as the race relations professionals and so on, or the municipal anti-racist, I think is the terminology that he uses in There Ain't No Black and the Union Jack. So there's been this top-down onslaught because of the realization of, and I think this connects to the point that I made at the opening, of the ult ultimate illegitimacy of, um, of whiteness to govern and this need to actually speak back to the majority of the world and say, no, we want to keep the status quo and we will pull out every single weapon that we have at our disposal to do so, including weaponizing concepts that may have come out of anti-racism against itself. So identity politics is another issue that I deal with in the book. This is you know, the concept par excellence, because of course identity politics is now thrown back against anti-racists as, you know, an insult almost. But if you look at the origins of identity politics, going back to the Combahee River Collective uh, statement, but also the ways in which it's enacted since then, um, there's something very different going on to the, you know, to the imagination of, of critics on both right and left who use this to admonish anti-racists as being divisive and so on. Um, there's there's so many things in this in this book to talk about, and uh, but we're we're getting near the end of our time, and I, I did yeah. want to turn to um, both a, a question about your own work and career, and also one of those sort of weapons, um, which is the rise of online harassment of anti-racist yeah. scholars and of anti-racist activists, um, which you've injured more than your fair share of. And I wondered if you could just talk about, about that um, and, and how you're thinking about it um, these days. Um, because I think it's something that is, is a method of enforcement of this refusal to, um, and, and, and what you pointed out in your last comments is this multi-generational effort to enforce and sustain a white supremacist sort of global order. Uh, although, again, the, in the liberal discourse, it just gets explained away as, as trolls and, you know, as, as nothing to be concerned exactly. about. No, I think it's extremely concerning. And I think the part, you know, I, I get a lot of harassment from, yeah, the trolls and so on. I mean, the Irish racist seems to be, seem to be the ones who really have it in for me, um, <laughs> particularly more than, any, more than anybody else. Um, but I think what really concerns me about this is the increasingly you know open links between academics mainstream academics who actually think of themselves as i think 
center left or you know centrist at least so they, they they don't think of themselves as being on the right or the far right at all and figures on the far right so uh, the entire group of people who write for um publications like Colette, you know the online uh, magazine or unheard uh, which i think is uk based and so on um where you know their tagline is the promotion of you know open debate about everything you know and, and and for viewpoint diversity and the free marketplace of ideas and all these catchphrases that they like to use but uh, actually on the anti-fascist uh, podcast that i uh, spoke on the other day they referred to this to colette as the as i think the online magazine of phrenology because ultimately you're talking about you know a, a lot of their content is you know the discussion of yeah eugenicist ideas evolutionary psychology uh, and all of these types of things. And what this does is it attracts a far right um, online cabal who then take legitimacy from the fact that tenured academics or others on the fringes of academia are writing for such publications and giving in a veneer of legitimacy. And because these people are often very well connected figures in the media, then they also get an airing in mainstream outlets like well all the mainstream uh, you know i'm thinking about the british uh, newspapers but also of course because public broadcasters like the bbc or the abc here in australia are constantly threatened by the right they have to or at least they think that they have to be um uh, you know show both sides of the argument and increasingly showing both sides of the argument is putting a black person who has lived experience of racism up against a complete nobody who's only who's only claim to fame is the fact that they don't think that racism exists and turning racism into what my friend and colleague uh, and co-writer Gavin Tippy calls a question of debatability um, and so so it's not just the trolls right it's actually the way in which the entire uh, media academic complex, if you like, is orchestrated to give legitimacy uh, to these uh, views. But the other thing I want to say about this very briefly is that the nature of the attacks that I receive specifically are, are anti-Semitic. And, and, and there is a problem, I think, uh, with discussing anti-Semitism in leftist spaces. And this is what the fourth chapter of my book uh, tries to do because of the degree to which I think on the left, we don't take anti-Semitism seriously. So when, you know, the, the, the recent kind of litany of, of anti-Semitism that I received, they were so blatant that everybody was quite shocked and taken aback. But sometimes when it's less blatant and so, you know, less obviously using the language of, of Nazism, et cetera, then people tend to kind of just scroll past it because I think um, anti-Semitic memes and ideas have infected the left to a certain degree. And this is not something that we openly talk about. And there is an unfortunate assumption among many people on the left that all Jews are Zionists. And this is something that I have characterized as a form of anti-Semitism in and of itself, because of course it doesn't make room or, may, or allow space for the existence of anti-Zionist Jews who deserve protection from anti-Semitism you know, as much as anybody else. And I think these things need to be talked about more. And what's interesting to me is the fact that I'm struggling to find partners for this dialogue. Um, and I think it's increasingly urgent when you have the fifth of the British public apparently being polled and saying that they think that either Jews or Muslims are responsible for the coronavirus, then I think that this is something that we need 
to discuss more openly. Oh, I, there's so much more I would love to discuss, <laughs> but uh, we're, I think, at the end of our of our time. Um, so I suppose I, I, I just just a huge thank you for joining us and for, for having for me. Us through some, so many of the important themes in your book. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I mean, fascinating. Uh, you know, it was, uh, I think, so many really interesting just threads there to, to unpick uh, for us. But for me, I mean, I think it just, um, Alana just raises this really important point for our own project in terms of understanding, sort of historicizing the current epidemic of anxiety um, and the, the kind of racial dimension of, of, that, of that epidemic, which is, uh, you know, like many other aspects of uh, race and whiteness, as Alana was making that point, is, is just kind of, um, uh, it occupies that strange uh, space in, our, in public discourse, and it's kind of this kind of hidden and uh, layered, um, in this kind of layered way. And I, I think, um, yeah, I was particularly interested in how um, the, the points that Alana was making about the role of not just the, the extreme right and the, the kind of resurgence of, of the uh, neo-fascism all over the world uh, in, in all this process, but the, the role of the center and the, what she calls the center left. I mean, I think by that I understand, without having read the book, but I understand, I mean, for me, it really speaks to this uh, the position of the extreme center, you know, to, to borrow Tariq Ali's term and, and the kind of, the, you know, the influence that that political space has exercised on, um, on discourse around identity politics and race. And um, yeah, I think it's just um, in, the, in the terms of our own project, I mean, I'm interested in exploring more the, the this kind of non or, or non-racist imagination that, is kind of seems to be very potent, right? And for the reasons that Alana was explaining, and um, and then uh, I guess uh, you know I'm 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 interested in how that type of imagination is in in struggle on or in the kind of um, in conflict with um, the kind of anti-racist imagination um, of. Uh, in, in the current context of, of our anxious kind of time. So, you know, loads of, it's more that these are interesting questions that are, you know, not, not very clear answers in my head, but um, yeah, but, but, but I, I think, you know, it's, it's really important work um, that we need to consider. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, I think very, very similarly, I'm, I'm cu increasingly curious about how anxieties that are in some way produced or elicited or generated from the existence of, of people within capitalism and especially this moment of late capitalism that as we've explored with other guests and together has so many triggers, so many stressors and so many triggers for anxiety. How the anxieties, the existential anxieties of capitalism in very particular historical and geographic sociological ways get grafted onto anxieties about race and racism. And 
you know, this is, this is a, a topic that's preoccupied, I think, critical theorists for generations. I mean, it's certainly a major theme in the work of the Frankfurt School when they think about, well, what, what drives people towards authoritarianism? What drives them towards, you know, Nazism? Um, and in our own day, the kind of uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth about the, the turn of, of polities towards sort of what I've characterized as revanchist, racist uh, demagoguery um, in, in Brexit or in the Trump campaign or elsewhere even uh, around the world, in Brazil, in India, in Hungary, um, uh, Turkey, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's so much interesting work to do when thinking about anxiety to, to, to note in specific ways how these anxieties of capitalism express themselves uh, through a language of race and racism. And then what is so fascinating about Alana's uh, offering to us is to note then how there's it's almost like a second moment of grafting where the anxiety then gets displaced onto an anxiety about being called a racist or an anxiety about being presumed to be a racist. Um, and this ties to me to, I think the, the, one of the best evidence of this is actually from the field of comedy. Um, and I think about the, the career of a figure like Ricky Gervais, uh, you know, probably one of England's most famous comedians, very successful. I mean, I don't understand his success outside of the fact that he's as a sort of um, white man who's, who's presented himself as the perpetual loser has consistently rehearsed a very tired trope of the well-meaning kind of jlubby white man who puts his foot in his mouth about race. I mean, this is like half of his material all the time. And then, you know, slowly we've seen him move farther and farther to the right and become a bit of a uh, beacon to, to the far right um, and to its kind of more mainstream counterparts through this kind of notion that uh, of, of a kind of persecuted white masculinity. Uh, and, and a particular one that's kind of calibrated on certain markers of, of uh, not being in the elite, being kind of an outsider. But this happens in comedy all the time. I mean, it's hard to actually like go to like Netflix and watch a comedy where this deep discomfort and anxiety about race uh, for white people is mobilized as a trope. And I think that alone tells us how prevalent precisely the, the kind of politics around racism and what, what Alana calls not racism is in our moment. Um, and so important to focus on in some way. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, so that on the one side there's that, and then I think what we're gonna speak about with Harry Sewell in our next episode is then, you know, compared to that kind of phobia around being labeled a racist that, that Gervais picks up on so, um, so, so well, or not well, I would say, but effectively, um, uh, that is in stark contrast to the forms of anxiety that happen to people of color every day who live in a racist society. And I think when those two are held up against each other, it, it really makes the contrast so stark. I mean, you know, the, the chances... And also of... what the former does to the latter, right? How mm -hmm. that uh, very much kind of high-profile publicized anxiety uh, uh, impacts on the real experience of lived, uh, you know, racialized people. 
and what it does for them, their capacity and the space that they can find to articulate that experience. I think, you know, that's, that's really, um, really important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, another wonderful episode. Uh, happy to co-host with you. So um, just to recap, um, this has been The Order of Unmanageable Risks. It is a podcast that is produced by us at the Common Anxieties Research Project and supported by the Reimagining Value Action Lab and the Institute for Advanced Studies at the University College London. And if you want to learn more or listen to past episodes, you can visit us at anxious.community. That is all just one URL, anxious.community community. Uh, my name is Max Haven. This is R.S. Comparoso Satanasio, and uh, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you at our next episodes. Thank you. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.